0: now hello hello hey it's we're still here and uh we are doing <laughs> the what? new name
1: of the podcast we're still,
0: still alive that? not oh. dead or change my video yeah with our new theme song staying alive by the Bee Gees. so to introduce this episode by the mid-1970s demand for italian westerns had greatly dropped off and they were becoming more difficult to actually film Around 1970, the Spanish government erected a giant antenna on the Sierra de Nijar, south of the Tabernas Desert, where most of the Italian Westerns were filmed. The construction dominated the landscape and changed all the possibilities for filming. Suddenly, the 360-degree view, which Sergio Leone had praised so highly, was gone. Instead, a massive red and white radio, TV, and communications tower dictated what could and could not be filmed. Soon afterwards, high-tension power lines ran across the Lando Del Duque territory in Spain, killing the 360-degree panorama there as well. The acid Western had replaced the Spaghetti Western in counterculture, and youth audiences were flocking to films like El Topo, Greaser's Palace, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Probably the biggest star of Spaghetti Western... My friend had El Topo. Yeah, El Topo's pretty good. Uh, Probably the biggest star of the Spaghetti Western era, Clint Eastwood, went from portraying anti-authoritarian outlaws in Sergio Leone's Dollars Trilogy to portraying the right-wing fascistic cop, Dirty Harry. All, was, all hope was lost until 1976 when what is known as the last of the traditional Spadey westerns was released. And that is the film we're here to talk about tonight. It is 1976's Taoma There's a movie you never seen. The map of some ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles. There'll be tears. We'll watch a movie for about eight billion years, and it's time for death by video. Time for death by video. And now the show will begin. It's death by video. Hello. Hello. Hey again. Let's introduce ourselves. Who's here? Phil, Kit, and Graham. Lillian cannot be with us this evening, although she is going to be coming back soon. So that's good news. Um, so yeah. So the film we're here to discuss tonight. We all watched it via the uh, the wonderful Tubi TV app. It is Kaoma, starring Franco Nero, directed by Enzo G. Castellari. And uh, uh, initial thoughts, guys? That's good. something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to, quite. I forgot how how good good it was. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, little bit of background on the film uh well,
1: here here like to sum it up i'd say like most things work in the film really well um the soundtrack is a bizarre choice yeah, yeah.
2: where they
0: <laughs> describe what the characters are thinking my, it's uh favorite, it's an odd one my favorite it's is one, its time yeah my favorite one is when uh when he sees his father and his brothers and the soundtrack goes is my father? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. quite my father literally. Was. Yeah, like just so weird and strange, and I have no idea why they, they chose that. Um, it's like a Greek chorus, sort of, but yeah, and they were uh, some stuff. They—it's interesting. The production behind it was um, so. It stars Franco Nero and directed by Enzo G. Castellari. Who Who is Franco Nero, by the way? I, I I feel like I know that person and I don't. He has all. He's the original Django. He okay. was the bad guy in Die Hard 2. This was released the as a Django movie, movie in a lot of countries. countries. It was, and it was actually initially intended to be a, a direct Django sequel because the producer, Manolo Bolognini, um produced the original Django, but they, they changed their minds along the way. So yeah, Franco Nero, he's a, he's a well-known actor. He starred in canon's Enter the Ninja in 1981, which was the first of their Loose Ninja trilogy featuring uh, Revenge of the Ninja, which I'm a big fan of, and Ninja 3 The Domination, which I'm also a fan of, but for different reasons. Uh, ninja 3 The Domination, that's the film that combines uh, a ninja movie, Flashdance, and The Exorcist. So it's a hell of a night of the wow. Yeah. We watched both of those ninja sequels at uh, past movie nights. We did indeed. I remember Revenge of the Ninja was a big hit, and- Definitely
1: seen Revenge of the Ninja.
0: Yeah, and Ninja 3, I th- I'm not sure if you were there, Kit, that's the one where uh, there's the V8 juice love scene, which is just disgusting and awful. No, I don't remember a scene such as that. Yeah, you wouldn't forget it. Um, but uh, because it was such a late period Western, so Franco Nero started off, one of his earliest roles was when he was 23 in the original film Django in 1966. We actually should do an episode on Django. Like I was researching, uh, like I just love the story behind Django and how it caused such an uproar for its on-screen violence and downer ending at the time. Um, it was out yeah, sure. uh, banned in Britain until 1993. and it was barely released in the United States because they released it unrated and so that could only play in the inner cities. Um, but by the point that they that they got around to making Kioma, Franco Nero had successfully transitioned into the Eurocrime genre, also known as Polizio films. films. <coughs> um, and uh, he, oh where is it here? What, uh, what
1: nationality is, is he? He's got a... I couldn't... He's Italian. He's Italian. Okay,
0: I figured. I couldn't quite yeah. place the accent because I wasn't sure what he was going for. Well, that's that's one of the things. In this film, he actually dubs his own voice a lot of times earlier because he actually struggled with the English And I think this might have been a film that he did phonetically. He might have pre- acted in it. Oh, okay. Because he got dubbed over in the original Django, and he got dubbed over in Enter the Ninja as well. And I even wrote down in my notes watching it, like somehow a uh, an, a white American man and a Native American woman produce a man with an Italian accent. So, who is a half Native Italian, apparently? Um,
2: the original Iron Eyes Cody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and um, well, yeah, well, the thing is, I kind of feel that the, that. Uh, uh, Billy Jack might have been an influence on this film as well because it, it features a, uh, a quote unquote half-breed Indian uh, taking yeah. on a corrupt political system. So I think that there was a whole bunch of influences on it. I mean, obviously the counterculture of the time. I think post-Vietnam now America was a big influence as well because if you hear about like, all oh, these people are coming back from the war and yeah. they trying to figure out how to reintegrate into society, like uh, Kiyoma is almost a proto John Rambo from first blood, not so much the Rambo sequels, but he kind of fits in that mold of like someone who went to war and came back and doesn't know where he fits in anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, um tons of peck and pause slow-mo in this movie.
0: Well, that, that was always a, uh, that was always a castellary, um, a trademark and yeah like, always on the uh, the deaths too of like a bad guy gets hit which uh also happens in my
1: red dead redemption 2 video game like when i shoot a guy in the head it goes slow-mo all of a sudden so and,
0: well that's the thing like uh, castellari in all of his films especially in the original Inglorious bastards he would do well, let me see how i wrote, wrote it down here um uh, his use of slow-mo so basically the slow motion how he described his slow motion was the slow motion leads up to violence. There's a act of violence at regular speed, and then back to slow motion to show the aftermath. So at the end of the film, when Django um, knocks the guy out of the um, what you call it, the the tower that he's in, Kioma, he, you mean? He, sorry, Kioma. I'm gonna get them confused. Same actor. Kioma like shoots the guy or something, and that's in slow mo. And then he crashes through the um, the window, the 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 building, and that's. Uh, regular speed until he hits the ground when it goes to slow-mo again.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, so I... I confusion to the mix. Um, mm-hmm. I guess in some markets it was sold as a Django franchise. I mean, it was called
1: like Django something or other. Django shows. Returns I think I saw or something like that. Or...
0: Yeah, that's that's that was totally common for the era. Like normally there were so many unofficial Django sequels. I think there was like over mm. a thousand or so or, or like a hundred at least. Well, or they a state, right? Yeah. It's got another really good name, too. Uh, Shit.
1: What's it also called? Oh, uh, The Violent Breed.
2: Yeah, it sounds like a world-funch riff.
1: The Violent Breed is a pretty good... uh, Although, I guess a little... uh, Now that I'm thinking about it, a little uh, risky. Yeah. Sort of
3: racist. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: it's interesting as well. I noticed that in this film, it it had a a much more complex attitude towards racism. Because in a lot of spaghetti Westerns racism or race in general wasn't addressed. Like there were very few Indians or native Americans in spaghetti Westerns, even in, um, in Sergio Leone's Westerns, like native Americans barely played any role whatsoever.
1: Well, okay. even, uh, Kiyoma himself has a, uh, has a heated moment where he uh, uses a racial slur.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment where his father says like, you know, um, when trying to ask what that whole war was about, that being the Civil War, he says like, well, we killed all the Indians, and then I guess to do good, we freed all the black people, and now we're going back to killing all the Indians. It's very, uh, yeah, like there's, there's a complexity going on here that, that I don't think was present, that was not present in earlier Spaghetti Westerns. So Franco Nero and Enzo G. Castellari first worked together on the, the Eurocrime film, High Crime, and then they followed up with a massive success street law," which kind of became the template street for Euro- Law." became the template for Eurocrime films in, uh, in Italy in the 1970s. And so with the success of Street Law, Castellari and producer Menolo Bologni um, approached Nero about appearing in one last Western. Bolognini pitched uh, the name of the film oh, but he, but the, so, he wanted, so Bolognini was the one that came up with the name of the film and the name of the character, which was Kioma. Because Bolognini said that Kioma was the Native American name that meant freedom, this was not true. He actually got it wrong. Kioma uh, actually means far away. There are other unconfirmed reports that Kioma was meant to be a direct sequel to Sergio Corbucci's Django, which was produced by L- Bolognini and also starred Franco Nero, but that's not been uh, has not been confirmed. Uh, Franco Nero has two hundred and thirty-seven acting credits on IMDb. Um, but he is best known for portraying Django and also Kioma. Kioma has come kind of come back into um, notoriety because it was on a lot of when they were doing the spaghetti western DVDs in the early the early aughts. There were a lot like it was distributed far and wide, and uh, now it's on like a lot of the free streaming services like Tubi. There is a Blu-ray of it out that's on a double feature with I think the Big Gun Down, uh, which I, I came across it a while ago. I should have picked it up, but I didn't. It also be noted that I the- caught just a tiny fraction. of it. <laughs> yeah, same. well it's recording on my computer so i can i'll hear it fine um oh, no. it um it should also be noted that the the long Okay, occur- well that's good. <laughs> oh and there's also lag. Yes, there's lag. Can you guys tell if there's lag or not?
1: There's lag on your end. Yeah, sometimes you're slow and then you really speed up very fast and then you
0: slow down yeah. again. Okay. Um can you not hear me? Kit now you're frozen kit you're frozen that we should okay, we're recording so yeah, yeah so uh, we're back this is day two of our epic Yoma <laughs> <laughs> recording session. Uh, apologize in advance and behind for all of the technical difficulties on this episode, but uh, I know I got through all of franco nero's um, Filmography and the fact that he's going to be in uh, Kaoma Rises and Django Lives, or at least they're announced to. Um, did you guys hear yesterday when I said that the reason why he's doing this is because he only has like three years left where he thinks he can safely ride a horse?
1: I remember, yeah. I caught some of that, yeah. So he's doing it now because. Yeah.
0: Although, well, I don't know. Like,
1: does he have like um, an illness, a
0: debilitating. He's just old. Like, you got to remember, <laughs> okay, like, so he's old old at least age. 80 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and John Sales is actually tapped to write Django Lives. Oh shit! Yeah, and he actually told the story of it on the uh, Movies That Made Me podcast recently. Where basically, it's like set. It's a real time later sequel to Django, where he's now working in like ni- in the nineteen teens, silent Hollywood as like a horse wrangler, and he's on the set. Of, oh, look. so he winds up on the set of uh, Birth of a Nation. Oh. Yeah. And he, like, looks Same around. Film. You guys haven't, have you guys ever seen the original Django? Oh, no, I haven't I I seen
2: Bird of the Nation. I don't know. see Bird
1: yeah, we're, we're I, I, do... I saw Bird of the Nation in, in film school. I don't remember much about it. But, um, I
0: did not see Django, the original one, though. No. So, we're gonna have to do the original Django on a future episode. But, uh, in it, he fights the Ku Klux Klan. Like, they're the bad guys. So the story of Django Lives would be that he's on set with A um, Birth of a Nation and looks around and sees like, wait, these guys are the good guys? Screw this! Does he and... shoot D.W. Griffiths or? No, I think it's it's some... <laughs> like he he goes off and he he like basically quits and goes to Mexico and fights like a. Uh, some kind of like evil bandito, or maybe like a because around the time of the release of Birth of a Nation, there was a revival in the Ku Klux Klan because they were pretty much all dead before that movie came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I also wanted to talk about the actor who plays the main bad guy, Caldwell Cadwell. Does he Caldwell have? Caldwell. I, I got
1: sorry. yeah. I wrote it down as Coldwell, but then I think it's Caldwell. It's Caldwell. Caldwell yeah. 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 He's got a familiar face. I didn't uh, I didn't look him up, but I'm guessing you did.
0: Yeah, yeah. I unfortunately didn't add him to my notes, so I'm just going to have to rely on uh, the IMDb to give me his background. Come on, come on, IMDb. So, yeah, so Cal- Cal- Caldwell was played by Donald O'Brien. So he is a British a- actor who basically found great success. Born in 1930, found great success in Italy, like a lot of British actors did during that time. So he was in... I'm just gonna run through some of his uh, better-known filmography. So he was also in uh, the Four of the Apocalypse, which is Lucio Fulci's spaghetti western, which has a really great soundtrack. He was in Kung Fu Brothers in the West, in the Wild West, which is a um, a uh, kung fu spaghetti western crossover. Nice. Um, he was in a bunch of the Trinity films. He was in Two Brothers in Trinity. So the Trinity was a series of uh, comedic spaghetti westerns starring um, uh, what's his name. Terrence Hill. Um, he's also in the great uh, spaghetti western, "Run Man Run." Uh, <laughs> it's got a good title. Yeah, he he's been in so many movies. But will uh, he was in like an early adaptation of the story, of "Dunkirk." He was in "Yeti Giant of the 20th Century." So that's the only movie. It's an Italian movie shot in Toronto about a giant Yeti attacking Toronto. Wow! Oh, I heard about this movie. Yeah, I think I. Yeah, s- didn't they they talk about all- it on, like, the Torontoist? Like, real Toronto? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, back in the day when, when that was still a thing.
1: But, you know, um, oddly, just just on a tangent, there is oddly not a lot of
0: Bigfoot and Yeti movies. I mean, aside from Harry and the <coughs> Hendersons. Oh, yeah. just type in Bigfoot into Tubi and you'll be surprised at how many Bigfoot movies there are. <laughs> Bigfoot movies yeah, have, still, like,
2: some genre there.
0: yeah, they have exploded in the last 20 years because all you need is the woods and a Bigfoot suit. And uh, Witcher, yeah. There's also, unfortunately, a lot of Bigfoot eroticism, erotica being released as well. I've heard um, about that. Yeah. 39. So he was also in the, he was the bad guy in the original Inglorious Bastards playing SS Commander of uh, uh, Commander Convoy. Um, he is in Zombie Holocaust, aka Dr. Butcher, Medical Deviant, and he played Dr. Butcher in Zombie Holocaust. He then Dr. went on Butcher. to. The, uh, in 2020 Texas Gladiators. And I think, I gotta remember the title because I only see the Italian title. It is (sighs) Guerrero Danano, 2072. Um, It's uh, Warriors of the Year, Warlords of the Year, 2072, which is another Lucio Fulci film. So he worked a lot. He was in the infamous Hands of Steel, which is kind of a Terminator knockoff, kind of not, uh, directed by Sergio Martino, who did 2019 After the Fall of New York. He was in The Name of the Rose, in nineteen eighty six. He was in with Ghost- uh, Sean Connery and uh, Christian Slater.
1: Yeah, forget about that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> was in Ghost House, aka Evil Dead Three, which was uh, an unofficial sequel in Italy. Uh, was acting right up until the year nineteen ninety four with uh, Honey Sweet Love, which I don't know what that movie is, but his role was officer. So he had a long, long career and a very interesting one. Um. So, moving on, um, did we get through Enzo G. Castellari's uh, filmography? No, yeah, I don't did think
2: we. Covers, I think you covered some of it yesterday. Oh, perhaps. They, they really, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because I talked about Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. Um, yeah, great title. But yeah, I think we, we ended like Tarantino is, a, is such a fan that he loosely remade Inglorious Bastards as Inglorious Bastards in 2009, yep. and he actually cast Enzo G. Castellari as an Italian general in the movie theater scene at the end, as well as having Brad Pitt's character use the alias of Enzo Girolami, uh mm. which, which Castellari used as a pseudonym on a couple films as well. So, Castellari actually has said that *Kioma* is his personal favorite out of all the films he's ever made. So, yeah, like it's, it's one of his personal favorites. Uh, George Eastman wrote the treatment that the script well, that the, the film was basically funded, backed on. George Eastman, of course, wrote and appeared in 2019 after the fall of New York, as well as 1990, uh, The Bronx Warriors. He's probably best known for Antropopagus. That was his, or AKA The Grim Reaper, uh, the movie where he plays a, a cannibal on an island that eats people. Um, some other background on the film is that, while Castellari, Bolognini, and Nero all liked George Eastman's treatment, when the finished script arrived, it was turned in by the writers, Mino Rowley and Nico Ducci. Um, they greatly disliked it. And so Castellari and the, uh, the actor, Joshua Sinclair, basically would meet every evening to write the dialogue for the next day's filming. And they took influence, like they would basically take like advice from crew members and they would also like be like, okay, what would Shakespeare do in this situation? Which is how- <laughs> That's what I'm always asking myself.
3: Yeah, when <laughs> what you're at the
0: Shakespeare do? And, and you don't you don't know what kind of beans to get it's like, what would Shakespeare do in this situation? Um, and- there are some um some some uh, wonderful line I don't know what's it wonderful, but um
1: some sort of iconic lines in this in this movie. Just I don't know. I guess they're meant to be iconic too.
0: Yeah, well do you have any of them written down? Uh like some of them are towards the end,
1: like the last line that he says is quite something. Well I oh right. Can I remember that. Can you read it for us, Kit? Oh, God. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking for it right now. Oh, here we go.
0: <clears throat> three pages of notes. I don't know what was wrong with me. It's a good movie. That's why. I was a little shocked you only gave it three and a half stars on Letterboxd. I thought it would be a four-star movie for sure. You know, for- if you can give the Irishman four stars, then, then the Keelman should get four <laughs> stars.
2: I think I gave it three and a half on Letterboxd as well.
0: Shame, guys, for shame. Phil, it's just
2: three and a half is a good rating. Three and, and a half, half is a solid a rating, game. yeah.
0: That's uh, like, this is going to be a fun movie that
1: most people would enjoy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I honestly think it's the soundtrack that takes it down a notch, that turns it into a camp rather than um, goodness, but yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. The, um, that soundtrack. So
1: at the end, spoiler, as he's, uh, he's uh, abandoning the child that has just been born and uh, the mother who has died. Um, the old woman who's kind of been haunting him, the old, uh, like, native woman.
0: She's credited um, as a witch, actually, in the, in the credits. And um, Yeah,
1: it's never clear
0: to me that she's actually a witch or something that only he sees. But anyway,
1: we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. But um, she's like, he'll die without you as he's riding away and abandoning the child. And then he turns around. He says nothing. He gets on his horse and he, and he rides off. And he turns around and he's like, he can't die. You know why? because he's free, and those who are free can never die. Which is like, all
0: right, I think he could still die though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. But whatever. (laughs) So let's talk about that soundtrack for a minute. The music was written by Guido D'Angelis and Maurizio D'Angelis, the Angelis brothers. Who also were in a, um, they had a band, I I
1: looked this up a little bit called um, Oliver Onions. Yeah, I don't know. Somewhat successful in, like, I think, like, the former Yugoslavia or some, some other uh, nation like that, where they were quite
0: big. Probably. a re- reunion concert recently. hmm Well, they actually uh, have, like, 195 credits to their name. Like, a bunch of their, their, their stuff's wound up in... It's just odd, because this is the only film that I, that I can think of, because I think I've seen some, some stuff with their... Um, with their music in it before. I mean, I know it was featured in yeah, they did the music for the for the Sergio Martino Giallo Torso. They're not singing the like they're not singing the plot of the movie um in in it. They also did uh High Crime the Violent Professionals which is the Violent Professionals such a good film. Um and I think they did they did uh I think yeah, they did Street Law as well. Um and some of their music was reused actually for, oh, they did the, the Italian Zorro from 1975, which is on Tubi as well. And by the way, check out the mm. Italian Zorro. It's, it's, it's fun.
2: Um, it's me, Zorro.
0: <laughs> but the funny thing is they, they hire, it's Alain Delong plays Zorro in it. So it's like the French, the Frenchiest Frenchman who ever <laughs> Frenched and in a very Italian adaptation of a story. story. Sorry, what?
2: also the most fascist Frenchman in
0: that. Yeah, that's... Yeah. So, and then, like, m- most recently, like, some of their music was reused in uh, the film Death Proof from Grindhouse.
1: It makes sense. Mm. Like, honestly, the music's not bad. It's, like, a kind of a... a f- like, just the music itself. It's yeah. very folky, like, plucking guitar kind of a... of its time. Sort of like the... um I don't know, like the post hippie kind of aesthetic they're going for.
2: Sort oh, of. Totally, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, like it, I, I, when I, when I first heard it, like I was just, it was on YouTube in the background. I thought it might even be Buffy St. Marie because the uh, the female yeah. singer, she's got a, a warble, like she does that same kind of um, like thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not, of course. It's, it's. I don't know who the singer in the. Um, I don't know who the singers are. It's Susan something. Oh okay. Yeah, I don't know. There's about a guy too, and he's like I thought, is that Franco Nero singing his own part? He's so ba- he
0: sounds <laughs> That's kinda I was drunk. Thinking as well. What's that? He sounds kinda drunk.
1: Yeah, a yeah. no singer,
0: yeah. Um but yeah, it's just
1: it's yeah, it's weird. It's a weird choice. It's a odd decision. You wonder if there's a cut where you could just remove the <laughs> vocals at least
0: from the from the music? That would bump it up to a four-star movie for sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: it would be a totally different movie without the music. Though it's, it's kind of charming in its way. Like the male vocals, uh, it kind of reminded me of like seventies Leonard Cohen. It's not like a bad imitation of seventies Leonard Cohen. It's like they yeah, watched, sort of. um, it's like they watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and they're sort of like channeling like, oh, Altman used Leonard Cohen songs, like pre-existing Leonard Cohen songs. It was all like off the song of Leonard Cohen for that movie, but they're thinking, like, hey, let's, you know, create uh, original songs for sweet, but done in the
1: style of Leonard Cohen. Yeah, Leonard Cohen slash Buffy St. Marie, Marie, Marie. I
2: guess. Buffy St. Marie, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, Yeah, it does have a, it does add a camp, so a very campy charm to the whole thing, so it would be a very different Mm -hmm.
0: movie. And I don't know. Maybe it works better in Italian because. When when that guy sang, sings, "There's my father and my brothers," <laughs> it's just like that's a very odd way to, to pronounce those words. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's a very bizarre choice for sure. Um, I mean, the other thing to, that interested me too is that like it's like Enzo G Castellari. He always used like he kind of was a bit more in tune with, um, with I guess what's going on socially than some of his Italian counterparts. Like you can kind of see that in um, in, uh, in, the original Inglorious Bastards, like he's got proto hippies in it. And there's kind of, the, he does bring up the issue that like a lot of American soldiers in World War II kind of went and uh, kind of like, you know, used French women, however they felt like it, and then dropped them and left them at the end of the war. Um, so that's he dresses that in there, and like obviously there's issues of racism in this film where it's like even Franco Nero's character, like you guys pointed out yesterday, he you know reached he reached into that racist bag himself when he was talking to like probably his only friend throughout the entire movie as well, like uh, the great yeah George portrayed by the great Woody Strode. So like there's issues of racism in it too. Like even like that scene at the at the beginning when when uh, Woody kind of stands up to those ex. A Confederate officers, and they just piss on his shoes because they're like- Yeah, oh, I gotta literally piss on his shoe. And so they just piss on him and then throw him down. And all he was doing was trying to protect the pregnant woman. Yeah. yeah, well, we should get into the plot a little, I guess. Yeah, yeah, let's get into the plot. So who wants to start?
1: Come on in. You've been gone quite a while this time. Where you been? Fighting at war. Meet anybody faster
0: than you? Not yet.
1: He shot Ben and Charlie, not even turning around. Ain't no man can hit a target without looking
3: at it. There are two men who can't. Paul is one and the other is this land belongs to Mr. Caldwell, along with everything that's on it. You had to pay for the water, and now you gotta pay for the medicine. <laughs> I'll pay this time. How much are you willing to pay? Four cents. The price of four bullets. One, two...
1: Three, and four.
3: Why are you helping us? When you've been away so long, your memories won't let you forget the debts that have to be paid. We're already dead. But you're still afraid. Death hasn't changed that. Who are you doing it for? For myself, maybe. Why'd you come back? The world keeps going around and around. So you always end up in the same place. You are around you tear, half the right to die, the pain you see, the pain you feel, the wrong you do. Hurt... Kayoma, you can't do it alone. I have to do it alone, because I am alone. So- Aren't you tired of killing? I have to survive!
1: Yeah, so it, uh, it, it opens on basically a, like, a abandoned village of sorts. Um, this, this film has the very kind of, like, howling wind um, kind of uh, Western aesthetic. Like, that's constantly in the background, sort of. Um, and there's, like, a, well, uh, who later to be revealed the witch, but it just looks like an old woman who's uh, in this kind of uh, abandoned village, which uh, we soon learn is uh, because of a plague, a local plague, Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Kiyoma rides in,
0: yep. into the, uh, abandoned village, and she's like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. We should also point out that the, uh, the witch was actually meant as a direct homage to Macbeth. Okay. Didn't, well, that didn't sounds translate. Weird, yeah. But, but, it, but done in a different way, where, like, she's a recurring character that gives, that speaks only to Kiyoma.
1: Yeah. And here we get one of the, uh... It seemed like a very Shakespearean witch to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, again I never quite clued into the fact that she was only um in Kiyoma's vi- vision. I thought, oh well, I guess she just turns up at the right
0: time. I didn't um, clue into
2: that to like, the second half of the movie to be honest.
0: Well, when she starts popping up like places she couldn't possibly have traveled to on her yeah. own and you're kinda like, Hey, what's going on? I I I just chalked it up to movie magic, you know.
1: <laughs> was, but um Psychedelic like seventies. <laughs> yeah. But um, she does. She at least was real at one point, or maybe she was never real. But she does. Uh, right in this opening scene, mm-hmm. um, she she asks Shoma if he remembers her. She she saved him. I guess his uh, he was born his father is white, but he's a uh, Native American as well. His mother was Native American, and,
0: and uh, his mother raised, along with sorry, and he was partially raised amongst Native Americans.
1: Yes, until the his village was massacred, and uh, I think he was the lone survivor, basically. Yeah. Assuming that this this woman doesn't actually exist, somehow she protected him like a guardian angel, mm-hmm. and got him to his father, and then his father brought him home to raise him. Uh, never really heard the story. I don't know if it was uh, in the dialogue at all of uh, how the father of how Kioma's father and mother met and what that romance was like. I don't think we hear too much about it.
0: No, it was no. just like. He met her on his travels and and now Kiyoma is left to as a un, as unfinished business, so to speak.
1: And uh, Kioma himself is played by Frank O'Nero. He's uh, he looks you know, he's got the lion's mane, the big beard, the, mm-hmm. the blue eyes, the steely blue eyes. And he is a man who wears uh, pants and a jacket, but no shirt. There's he yeah. never wears any shirt. <laughs> he is showing off his uh, his necklaces and his chest hair constantly in this film.
0: He kind of has a late period hippie look, like because yeah. uh, he has long hair compared to everybody else. Although some, like one of his brothers, has like kind of like uh, neck length long hair, which yeah, shoulder length yeah. of the period. And they were trying to cover it up by making him look more, I guess, like a, uh, a European aristocrat. Yeah. I wasn't
1: quite sure of the setting of this film, but um, in the opening scene, I noticed there was a one of the s- der- the signs that were kind of hanging low said uh, something about Michigan Infantry. So I guess it could be the northern Midwest sort of. All
0: those deserts in the north in the Pacific Northwest. Well, <laughs> I talked about Out around Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> Although, there, there was. I, like, I have a feeling there was probably like a, a rain recently because the desert scenes did have some greenery to them. Like it looked like they had. Mm-hmm recently gotten some because like when certain places like deserts when it actually rains there it's very common that like all of a sudden vegetation will just spring up like crazy because like it is in these seeds mm-hmm. that are like buried in the sand that don't have any access to water so as soon as they get to just sprout like that's actually what happened what delayed um mad max Fury road um a few years back was that they're all to they shoot then it rained for three days and then all of a sudden everything was green and this desert oh, landscape was like totally lush and vibrant looking which is not what you want. No. No. <laughs> um, and so where do we, um, the other interesting, interesting thing too about the, the sets of this film is that um, this was a lower budgeted Western than like, because like I had, I had said like earlier, they were losing their appeal. And so this was a lower budgeted Western than normal. And the, um, the, the standing sets that were used for the street scenes were super dilapidated. And normally like the production crew would, would fix them up. And they just made, they were just like, no, this suits the story perfectly. So we can save money and not have to dress the town. It'll just look like a dilapidated town. And it did. Yeah. So Phil, where do we go from there
2: story-wise? Okay. After the opening credits. uh, Well, well, hold on, hold on.
1: Sorry. I just, uh, I want to, well, because we get the old woman who's like,
3: Kioma, Kioma,
1: Kioma. She's yelling at him. Why did he come back? And then we get the first song and I've written all like the songs down as far as like what they basically explain. <laughs> there are nine songs by my count. It's all mm-hmm. to the same tune, uh, like the same little, uh, little chords that are plucked. Um, and this uh, first song is basically, Kioma. what's your deal? <laughs> is the
0: name of the song. Nice. That sounds like the title of like a, a Bob Dylan song from nineteen
1: seventy-two. Yeah. <laughs> and this this plays as Kioma is riding majestically over these these lush, vibrant uh, fields that you were just describing, uh, Graham. Mm-hmm. And then and Phil, sorry, where do we go after the credits? So after the credits,
2: there's um, a pregnant woman who's uh, about to be abducted by um, a group of uh, baddies, and uh, they're on a plank, uh, to, because of the plague, she's yeah, on a plague card, days. I think.
0: But she, but but she doesn't actually have the plague, right? Like, doesn't her husband early on yeah. say, "Don't touch me, because then you'll get it"? Yeah, her husband has it; she yeah. doesn't. But they're mm-hmm. taking a no. But they're
2: taking her away
0: approach. anyway. Though. Yeah, because they're bad guys.
2: They're bad guys. But uh, Kioma swoops in because he's, he's got a. Uh, He's the fastest hand in the West, so to speak. And just, uh, well, there's
1: a, he does, he saves her, but there's a whole bit where basically her husband is like, I'm going to create a distraction so you can run away. Mm-hmm. My and she's like, don't, 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 don't do it. And he's like, no, I'm going to. So he jumps off the cart and he runs away mm-hmm. and they, they shoot him dead. And she does not take this opportunity to move at all. Mm-hmm. She just sits in the cart. Everybody else in the cart does take the opportunity to be like, oh, this is our chance. We're going to get out of here. And they're all shot dead too. So she's the only one who's left. Um, everybody else in the play card is dead now because the guys have been like, oh, the the sickies, they're, they're getting away. We can't let them infect anybody else. We've got to shoot them down. So she sort of made the smart choice by not following her husband's advice and just sitting in the cart. So they just surround her. And I guess now they're going to, I forget, they're going to hang her or just? Anyway, Kiyoma comes in to and, to,
2: and saves the day.
1: Yeah, they're going to so take her to a mine, to- I think. I think I
0: read the uh, Wikipedia plot synopsis, and they're on their way to a... Yeah, they, they have a, a mine that they're putting all the plague victims in. Although, yeah. here's the, the interesting thing, is that I don't... They never establish <laughs> what the plague is, and none of the people who are suffering from the plague actually look mm-hmm. sick. So, I think it might have been a... Like, you could argue it's a made-up plague that's just you being used to keep the population in control. Yeah. Because they keep... Although, maybe plot point is...
1: A major plot point is them getting medicine because the plague apparently is quite curable. They just don't have any medicine for it. Maybe it's yeah. just a common cold. Could be. Um, it's like a stand-in for the smallpox or something, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, probably. Um, anyway, yeah, Kiyoma saves the day. Mm-hmm. What's next, Phil?
2: Uh, I totally forget what the subsequent scene is. We do
1: get our second song. Yeah. Our second song is, uh, I've written down here, you got to protect this woman, Kiyoma.
0: Isn't one of the lyrics of the song like, you have saved a life with a life inside of it or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, probably.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: so after that, um, Phil, they take, uh, Kiyoma takes her to like the local, um, I guess, saloon slash hotel. Right, right, right. Um. Which I think is called, like, the Skidoo Cafe or something. I noticed that sign in the background. It's, I I, oh, I thought that said leader. Skidoo City. Maybe it's Skidoo City. Maybe that's where the Skidoo was invented. <laughs> yeah, in I mean, Michigan. Yeah. Would make sense. True.
2: And there he's reunited with uh, Woody Strode. And um, Woody Strode is a newly freed
0: slave. Right. This is post-Civil War. Who used to be what? owned by his father? He's uh, he looks so familiar. Um, he's been whoa, in a lot what of else? Stuff. Yeah, what else has Woody Strode been in? Well, I'm pretty sure we discussed it, but like he was in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He okay. was he was in, uh, he's kids, in the the Professionals. Yeah, uh, the Ten Commandments. Spartacus. Uh, oh wow! He was in the 1960s Batman TV series, and he was in uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. He was also in, although they used footage from a totally different movie and just spliced it in with another actor, this Italian post-apocalyptic action film called Fatal Executioner. Um, and it clearly like was like he was in a Western, and the other guy was in a post-apocalyptic movie. So they kind of like, because I was like, oh, Woody Strode's in this. This, could, this might be okay. Nope, it, it was not.
2: I was checking the credits on Letterboxd. He was also, I guess, like, at the end of his life, he was in the Mario Van Peebles Western uh, Posse.
0: I don't know that one.
2: I've never seen it, but I remember at the time. It was sort of... I think it has a bit of a cultural It's, I think it stars Mario Van Peebles as well, and, like, Big Daddy Kane has a supporting role in it. Cool. Kid, of you, seen you. It? No, I it? No, I feel like I've heard of it, but... It's like an all-black western oh, in the understand. early '90s. I also it, wrote some... it was like around the same time as like Tombstone. and I guess, between like Young Guns, the Young Guns movies and Tombstone.
0: <laughs> between Young Guns and Young Guns Two. <laughs> yeah. I think that... this
2: was after Young Guns Two.
0: <laughs> yeah, because there was that whole early '90s Western revival of like Unforgiven yep. and Young Guns, Young Guns Two, Tombstone, Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But what was I going to say? So Woody Strode plays what you think is a banjo throughout the movie, but it's Mm -hmm. actually—I know that instrument. It's a resonator mandolin, and it looks like
1: a banjo. It sounds like a banjo, but
0: no, it's—it's actually like an eight-string instrument. Like you'll notice, like the headstock. Because I was looking at him, like the headstock has like eight tuning pegs on each side. I'm like, that's a mandolin, and it's a resonator mandolin, which is a totally different thing. Yet when he strums it, it sounds like a banjo, which is just. I love Italian movies. It's like, we need something that looks like a banjo. Well, we don't play the banjo in Italy. What do we play? The mandolin. So, here we go. But yeah, and so there's some pushback at the saloon of letting the pregnant woman stay there. And- they
1: know she has the plague. but she they, has, they think she, she doesn't, she but
0: mm. yeah. Yeah. They know who she is, is what I'm exactly, saying. Exactly, yeah. And so they're like, we're not gonna let that pregnant woman in. And then basically Django pushes a prostitute. Basically tells a prostitute. Kiyoma. Okay, so um, he basically tells a prostitute like we're taking over your room, and she's kind of like okay, because Django or sorry, not Django, Kioma, is so like intimidating and good with a gun that he just intimidates everybody in that entire saloon. And I,
1: I think uh, actually he gets like four or five guys stand up to him and like, hey, no, you're gonna have to get out of here. And he just shoots them all down. Yeah. And Kyoma, by the way, he carries all, he carries around this pretty badass uh, sawed off
0: double-barreled shotgun, which is his main weapon. Which I don't think actually existed at the time. Perhaps, Cause, no, cause this I don't is, know. This is, this is post-Civil War, right? So it's like, this isn't like mm. 1880s, this is 18, late 1860s, early 1870s, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if they had double-barreled, but they were certainly sawing off shotguns around that time. Yeah, I also I, I think just, it might have been a bit it might have been a bit more musket than revolver at this time as well. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I, mean, I, just, I just I finished
1: reading a uh, Blood Meridian recently, which takes uh, place around the same time, and there is a
0: plot point where a guy uh, he he makes a, a sawed-off shotgun. Nice. I, I should read Mer- Blood Meridian. I've never read it, so. Oh, you'd like it. Yeah. So where do we go from there? Uh, he meets up with Woody Strode again, who is now. Drunken George. Well, maybe you could describe the kind of uh, way this movie does flashbacks.
1: Cause I thought it was kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's it a very 70s style flashback. It's like within the scene. Like it's like none mm-hmm. of the characters leave. It's just like, oh, there's me as a little boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: there's, a lot yeah. of qu- there's a lot of fast cutting, like almost like Nicholas rogue style, like mm-hmm. non-linear editing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely had hints of um... What's the, uh, oh, my God, I can't believe, uh, Don't Look Now. It kind of reminded me, like, yeah. like it reminded me of Don't Look Now. Um, totally, yeah. But, yeah, and it, it was... just such fun. a Nicholas Rogue trademark. Mm-hmm. And flashbacks were, were totally always a part of uh, spaghetti westerns. I think going back to mm-hmm. probably for a few dollars more, when there were, uh, Colonel Mortimer, played by Lee Van Cleef, was having flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Or, no, the, yeah. the bad guy was having flashbacks. And... Um, and like, I think, I still think my favorite flashbacks in any Western have got to be in um, Once Upon a Time in the West, where it's just that totally shallow, super razor thin, shallow focus, and a character is just slowly walking out of it until eventually it's revealed that it's the guy that has been in the movie the entire time. Um, but yeah, the mm-hmm. flashbacks here, I really, I really like how they were done too, because it kind of almost feeds into the magical realism of the piece. Like, Yeah, yeah. The film could almost be, like, what's that, uh, like, High Plains Drifter a bit where, like, Clint Eastwood plays the ghost? But, like, it's, it, he's, like, Kiyoma, we know Kiyoma's alive. Or maybe Kioma died during the Civil War, and he's just up and, like, he just has come back to his hometown because he has unfinished business. Maybe, it, yeah. Yeah, like, you can read into it a lot because, I mean, I, I also I think mean, I mean, people do seem to react to him like he's a real person, and they try to kill
1: him and stuff, so... Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a whole Jesus
1: part at the end.
0: Oh, yeah, where he gets Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, Frank O'Neill going for the Jesus play again. Um, Because he, if you have it, yeah, we should do The Visitor. I got to find out if that's streaming anywhere, because in that, he legitimately plays Space Jesus. And (laughs) he plays, like, blonde-haired Jesus from outer space, who is involved in trying to stop the Antichrist from somehow affecting the NBA. It's a very bizarre movie. It is the Mount Everest of insane Italian science fiction films, and we will definitely be doing it. Maybe, yeah, oh, it sounds great. Yeah, maybe if I can find uh, where it's streaming, maybe next week, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, I think it's on Canopy, but I
2: I think I saw it on Canopy. Oh, right. I need to double-check, though. I need to double-check, but I think I saw it there.
0: Cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Um, but yeah, so we basically learned to lay of the land, that Caldwell, or Caldwell owns every, all the business essentially, and he has not permitted food and medicine to be shipped into the town. And this is how he keeps the townspeople in check, he keeps them weak. And then his men, he keeps in power by money and, and women and booze and food and all that stuff. We also,
1: uh, yeah, the next day, Kiyoma goes to visit his old his old dad, Mm -hmm. Um, this is where we get a lot of backstory as well and then we learn that he has three half brothers who have all decided to side with Caldwell um, because he's stronger and they're going to side with who's
0: stronger as his dad explains exactly And, uh, and so where do we go from there? Don't
2: we also see, like, flashbacks already at this point of, um, the brothers tormenting him as a kid?
1: Yeah, that's kind of all wrapped into the scene when he returns to his dad's Mm -hmm. home. Um, I don't know if his brothers are around, but he uh, sees himself as a little boy, um, Mm -hmm. being tormented by his brothers, his, uh, the three fail sons, as I call them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, they, they play, yeah, the Shannons are their names. That's their last name. yeah, I've got them written down here. Who are they? Uh, like a swarthy, oh, am I here? You, you're back. No, now you're back.
1: Now oh, you're back. Okay. Stop. Oh, and it says my, in- internet, connection mm. oh, it says my in- internet connection is unstable.
0: My Don't back. worry, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, you can talk, yeah. Yeah, just
1: okay. go, go through Go through so the, got to, the others. Yeah, so we've got Butch Shannon, who looks <laughs> like a swarthy Donald Sutherland. Who is played by
0: Orso Maria G- Gherini? Gherini? Yeah, he, He's a he's a well-known Italian actor. He does look like Donald Sutherland, right?
2: Yeah, especially yeah, he Donald does Sutherland. Does look like Donald Sutherland. Like, he's got like a Sutherland stash. He's yeah. lanky like Donald Sutherland, yeah.
0: Yeah, then who else do we have? Got that curly hair. hmm We've got
1: Sam Shannon, uh, who looks like sort of a mix between uh, Eric Bana and uh, John
0: Cavalli, or John okay. Cazzali And so he is Joshua uh, Sinclair who co-wrote the, basically like helped save the movie by writing dialogue every night.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then we've got Lenny Shannon,
1: who mm-hmm. kind of is like an off-brand Aaron Eckhart. I don't, I don't know else to describe him. <laughs> yeah. Like
0: Fred from Scooby-Doo is what he looks like. And that's Antonio Marchina. And so yeah, the three brothers who like, they're kind of like the outliers. You, you never know quite where they're gonna go. Like if they're gonna do a face turn at any point or they're gonna stay heels throughout the entire movie. And it at the end, there's a moment where you're, where they shoot the bad guy, and you're like, yeah, they're they're joining up with their brother, and then it's like quickly, no, nope. they're not. Nope. nope. No. <laughs> no. 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 They, they hate know. their brother. They're super racist about it. Well, yeah, I know, and they like you get. You, they even like raz their dad. Like you spent all this time with him and not us. You're but this real- half breed. I think they even say they don't even. Yeah. They yeah. No,
2: they totally say half breed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. So we were we in the story. So he goes and sees his dad. And this is where we also kind of get a bit of the backstory on George, where we realize that George had a hand in in raising uh, Kiyoma and teaching him how to fire a bow and arrow. So where did we leave off, guys? Um,
1: well, I'm not sure how we get to the third song. I've got it written down here, but it, maybe I will uh, read it out to you guys, and then you can describe how we got there. Sure. What's the third song? The third song goes... Oh, shit, she's gone. You going to save her, Kioma? They're going to for sure kill her. It'll be too late soon. It's probably too late already.
0: Oh, right. That's when, so the pregnant woman is, like, stolen from the hotel by the ex-Confederate uh, soldiers to be taken to the I mine. think this is, uh,
1: this is the scene where they piss on George's shoe, because he's like, hey, you can't take her. Right, right, right. So, yeah, they go
0: in to, like, basically- But Kiyoma's th- chilling at his dad's place, so. Mm-hmm. And so what happens from there, Phil? Oh, uh, Kit, what 20. happens from there? I kind of blank on this part of the movie too because it's just a whole bunch of like mush happening.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> so they they've got her. Um, they're going to take her out um, to the plague mine or wherever they're taking her. Hmm. Um, and I can't. I, they're they're out on the uh, in the plains or wherever they're halfway there. And I think Kioma goes out and. Um, brings her back. And he saves her, I think he shoots everybody down, I believe. Yeah. He's pretty good at doing that. hmm And then he uh, takes her to the doctor. Oh, is this where, actually, is this where he confronts his brothers? I think it is. Yeah, right, because they-, they where he masks. finally confronts them, they're all wearing masks, which, yeah. I, like, at first I thought it was, oh, because they're being bandits, but no, I think it's because of the plague, they're, they're doing are doing. do. Mm-hmm, kind of like what we're doing right now, ha-ha. But even still, he's like, "You don't need to wear those masks. You'd act the same way without them."
0: Mm-hmm. And they re- are revealed to I be more like bandanas than masks. Yeah, they're they're bandanas. You're you're right. But but that's what people would wear back then, in ca- like to keep yeah. people safe. That's but, what that's what we were wearing in 2020, really. And so if he takes her back. Is this when he takes her back to the doctor? And that's yeah, well, we get our we get our fourth song here,
1: which is a duet. Is. Uh, let's see, it goes. Look, she's fine.
0: Hell, she's in love with me, and I'm in love with her. This really is, like, not a love story, though. It's just it's, the woman is just kind of, like, around. I
1: know, but that, that's basically what the lyrics are. And you can tell that they're supposed to be, like, oh, there's an affection building her, here. She loved him. She certainly yeah. sees him as a protector.
0: Smiles when he's around. i I um, wonder if the lyrics to the songs were added to be, like, crap, like, the audience really, like because of all the problems with the script, like we really didn't sell the whole, like what's going on internally. I got it. Let's have song musics describe how everybody's feeling. And that way the audience will totally be keyed in.
2: Yeah. It's like an omniscient narrator of sorts. Mm-hmm. The songs. So.
0: Yeah. So it's still, it's just such a weird choice. It's a weird choice,
2: but I, yeah, as divisive
0: as I kind of love it. It grows on you. Cause the first time you're like, what? Like, and then- What and then, information of this music? Yeah, but the weirdest thing is like one, occasionally like they start to play a song, but there's no lyrics and you're just like, oh, I kind of expected there to be lyrics right here. And so after that, he takes her to the doctor and the doctor basically explains that like they, uh, Caldwell doesn't allow them to have medicine in the town. Like he's cut off food, cut off all the like, um, whatchamacallit, uh, all the contact to the outside world. So the town is basically at Caldwell's mercy to survive yeah and um yeah because he
1: confronts the doctor he's like you're in the you're in Caldwell's pay you're you're you know you're screwing these people over yeah and the doctor's like no no it's out of my hands Mm -hmm.
0: and um at that point where are we at that point so is this the point where like uh Kioma goes to his father again
1: or he goes, uh, yeah, he does. So he does that. But then also, George and the doctor devise yeah, they, a plan. They sneak out. Yeah, they're going to sneak out and get some medicine from a nearby town. Yeah, exactly. And then and how they do this is they pretend George is dead. Right. Um. And then the doc carts him out and they all sorts of, you know, racist epitaphs. Oh, just getting this hear what's-his-face n-word out um blah 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 and they're like and the, you know the men are like oh there's only one n-word in that uh, town and he's uh, alive and hail
0: I'll and hearty he. but the, the amazing thing is like they the the ex-confederate soldiers see a black man with his eyes closed and they're just like yeah he's dead <laughs> it doesn't take them much convincing no no <laughs> i
2: guess that's what like the
1: yeah like oh we got another one um Horrible, and right? meanwhile, yeah, Kiyoma's at his dad's place, and he's like, well, what should I do about uh, my brothers? And his dad gives him some advice, like, kind of strange, like, well, you know, I couldn't shoot them. Mm-hmm. Well, his dad's basically saying, like... Well, kind of like saying, maybe, <laughs> maybe you should shoot
0: it out with yeah, them. Yeah, just, you know, just end my sons. Like, <laughs> if you're the only one that's kind of decent, a decent human being, and I yeah, can't... They
1: keep- are. <laughs> Yeah, right? these three guys are, are quintessential fail sons is what they are. They're just useless. Yeah. They're yeah. not even good at being bad guys. They're,
0: they're not terrible the main, at everything. That's the thing, they're not the main bad guy. Their, their whole thing is like, well, I remember like the, the three brothers say like, Well, may well, we don't want like Cadwell and we know we don't want our brother to win, but maybe if Cadwell and our brother face each other, they'll just kill each other off. Which is a plan that never works. I don't understand why people are like, no. they'll kill each other off. It's like, no, they won't.
1: Like, it's not well, like- it's, it, it is a, Playing both sides against the middle is a time-worn
0: strategy. I don't know how often it works out. I know, but, but, but they don't even play the sides off each other. They're just like, well, they don't do anything. They're just like, we're going to see what happens at the end. So...
1: Um, anyway, they they quickly get fired by Caldwell for incompetence because they are just total fail-sons. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you couldn't even stop one half breed. You're out of here.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And so they're just like, well, let's just wait and see what happens.
1: And uh, but I, I guess right before they get fired, though, they do try to to confront him. And here's where we get the big um, fist fight in in the middle of
0: the town. Right. And his brothers. Yeah, yeah. He fist fights his three brothers. And this and is where this we year. get song number five. That's the father and brother song. Yeah. Song
1: five is oh shit, there's my dad why am I in this mess and I'm fighting with my brothers? Why do they hate me?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, the answer to that is racism. Um, Yes. But uh, uh, the interesting thing is like, I thought because it was a fist fight that maybe his brothers would see the error of their ways at the end. Like if it was a North, if it was an American Western, that's what would happen. Where like the three brothers would be like, we got to like our father's siding with him. Maybe we've been wrong all along. He is our brother after all. Let's go in and help him.
2: But no, they're garbage sons.
0: Yeah, they that's are. why I love Italian westerns because it's like nope, they're just bad. Yeah. Well, I like the uh,
1: the one the one son. He's all like because um, they're all they kind of surround Kioma on their horses. All three of them are on horses and they surround him, and he's on his on his feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one says, uh, "I I could beat you my by myself." And Kiyoma literally just rips him off his horse and then beats the shit out of him before he can say anything else. And then he points at the second brother and then they, they do it like one
0: by one after that. I know, it's, it's that old movie trope of like, let's attack him one at a time. We'll we wear him down, basically. Not, if all three of us do it at once, we could we could take him out, but no, it's one at a time. Because we got our pride to work. I, I think there's supposed to be like some sort of honor
1: thing here. Like, oh, let's not, you know, we can, just fight him, mono a
0: mono. Let's. We're better than this half breed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: But the Tama Sutherland son is proves to be a pretty significant challenge, I'd say, comparatively. He's,
1: yeah, he's the final boss, uh, Garbage son. Well, <laughs> he's yeah. After. Because he, he wanna... beats the first, the he beats the first Garbage son so easily. Second yeah. Garbage son employs some um some devious tricks. Basically, he's all like. Oh, why don't you put your gun over there? And as soon as Kioma like turns to do that, he kicks him the in the balls or something. Like he, you know, he tries to do him dirty. Uh, yeah. Kiyoma still gets the upper hand, and then it's on to the, you know, the boss garbage son who is the Donald Sutherland type.
0: I I, I kind of feel that like they they also were like doing a little bit of Freud- Freudian uh, work with th- with the three sons or the three brothers oh, sure. because you've got the the poor man's uh, Viggo Mortensen. He's like the superego. You no no he's the I'd say he's the id. You've got the the other guy like the 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 what you call it the uh, the younger brother who's like kind of like the, the super ego, and the then Donald,
1: Yeah,
0: and then Donald Sutherland is the ego. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It it's, does, it's
2: of its time, so let's mm-hmm. I'm sure that they were that these uh, psychoanalytic audience uh, yeah. overtones were
0: attention and we should also point out that we're not one of those people this these podcasts that still think we understand that the psychological community has basically said freud was full of crap <laughs> and, and we don't we don't endorse his like worldview at all
2: no but it's uh I it's a lens the readings of uh here on death by
1: video it, it's still a helpful lens with which to um mm-hmm. view some of these these works, because they were obviously going off the idea that uh, ego and the id and yeah, the super ego and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's still good cr- uh, criticism lens, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember that being like my first day in uh, in psychology 101 in, uh, in university, the professor basically being like, so Freud works very well in pop culture, but like it's not an actual good way to analyze any human being. Um, and- <laughs> And they point out, and he also pointed out, like, you know, all of Freud's work was about children, yet he never studied children. So don't, like, it's okay to use it as, like, a pop cultural analysis, but don't actually use it as a psychoanalytical analysis, because there's just so many issues. But there are so many people that still think Freud is the be-all, end-all of psychological um, study. Most of those people have never taken a psych course in their lives, but, you know, people do. Uh, So back to the movie. So after this... While this is going on, uh, where does Kioma go at this point? He goes back to, with his dad, right, to the to the Well,
1: park. yeah. Well, we get so I guess the medicine is successfully. Yeah. Brought. No, no. Actually, here's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we get a we get a sick song pretty soon afterwards because the dad has told his sons off too. Uh, they were like, "Oh, why do you why do you let uh, Kioma come around here?" And he's like, "He can come and he can come and go as he pleases." You can come and go as you please as well. In fact, you can go to hell. (laughs) Um, And then um, song number six is uh, Time to Run Away. Your dad, you and your girl, sounds good. Get going. Far away.
0: Right. But by this point, the medicine has safely come back to the town. And the ex, basically, Codwell's men are there, and they're like, you got to pay us to use that because Codwell owns everything on this on in this town, including that. And that's when Woody Strode basically tells him like, just so you know, a federal marshal is showing up in two days to take care of all you guys. And this is when basically Codwell and his men decide, okay, we gotta, we gotta like take control of the situation and ownership of it as well. So this leads us to the great 20 minute. And this is where Enzo G. Castellari, like, he does great action scenes that I'd argue still hold up to this day. So the action, the main action climax of the film is 20 minutes long. It's from the hour. Cause the movie is, um, is uh, whatchamacallit, is 101 minutes long. Um, so at the one hour mark, that's when the, the main action sequence starts. And it goes for 20 minutes up until the hour 20 minute mark. And then there's 10 minutes of the brothers establishing. We're skipping ahead, but I'll, we'll go back to it. Ten minutes of the brothers establishing that they own the town, and then another ten minutes of Je- of Kioma having to face his brothers so that they don't kill the uh, the pregnant woman. Um, so, and this twenty minute action sequence is so well done. It's Cogburn's men invading the town, and you've got three people to defend the town basically, and that's Kioma, Kioma's father, and George. And they do a really good job. They they kind yeah, of you could almost c- compare it to guerrilla warfare, where there's this invading army, and these three men utilize the town's environment to their own advantage. Um, and there's also no, a- so here's okay. So, go ahead, Graham. Well, I was going to say there's one stunt that I was just flabbergasted Graham? by. Yes, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Phil? Can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Sorry, I just want to because I'm not sure. So we we get where the medicine thing and that confrontation where they're unloading the medicine. Yeah. Um, and they're like, well, you got to pay duty on that. One of, the, uh, one of the men, the main uh, Caldwell guy, like the second in command yeah, or something. Yeah. So he's like, you got to pay money on that. And then Kiyoma shows up out of nowhere and he's all like, I'll give you four cents for it. Oh, this is, a great, this is That's a great awesome. Oh, yeah. Four cents. And then uh, I love the camera work here too because he holds up his four fingers and there's uh, four of Caldwell's men there to kind of um, yeah. exact this payment. And he says it's one, 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 one cent meant.
0: per, it's one, each bullet costs one cent.
1: Yeah, so he ends up only paying three cents for it because he immediately
0: shoots three of them dead. Well, they do this cool thing where, like, his hand blocks. Cool with
2: your name on it.
0: Yeah, there's the hand, his four fingers block the four men, and he goes one, mm-hmm. two, three, four, and on each one he lowers a finger and reveals a man. And so he shoots three of them dead quickly, and then he gives the, the fourth one a bullet and says, here, this is a bullet with your name on it. And it's just fantastic yeah and that and no. that's and then basically like, like yes, well, they they, basically, they leave
1: town for a bit, but then Kioma, his dad, and uh, George come back to confront the men afterwards,
0: yeah, because the men invade the town, and uh, and uh, Lisa, that's the pregnant woman. she she gets snuck out of town to go to like a, this abandoned place on the outskirts.
1: Yeah, to give birth, maybe. It's it's funny, Lisa is, uh, I guess, very pregnant throughout the film, but the actress does not look pregnant whatsoever. No,
0: it's the very beautiful Olga uh, Carlatos. Um, yeah. She, um... Uh, almost they don't remember. even really give her a pillow, though, to wear under her, like, no, thing. No, just a like, baggy shirt. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but so there's this stunt that during this entire sequence that just kind of boggled my mind because I'm like, if they do, if anything on it went wrong, like there are full-on horse rolls, people falling off of horses. I, I, know, I know the stunt you're talking about. Um, the, the it one comes where, after song number six, which uh, which I'll tell you here. Well, which stunt do you think I'm talking about? I'm, I'm thinking, is it the two horses? No, that's another oh, okay. one where where you can see, because that's actually Franco Nero straddled between two horses, terrified. Um, I, <laughs> no there's a scene where there's one of Codwell's men and he's riding a horse and the horse comes into camera he grabs the post of a building flies off the horse flips over a a little uh, banister then gets shot by Woody and does a backflip back over the banister and I'm like he could have had his arm broken by like grabbing the post yeah. like if he got hooked in the in the horse he would have been like he would have had back problems like it's an insane stunt that like I had to watch three times cause I was just so sh- so flabbergasted by it. Like it was amazing. And, um, full credit to the, the, the Italian stunt teams, like it was kind of like a little safety last scenario, but like the stuff they did, um, if you ever listened to John Landis, he talks about, he worked as a stuntman man in Italy from, um, I think like, uh, 66 to like, maybe like 1971 or something because um, he came over to work initially on Kelly's Heroes in Yugoslavia and then went up in Italy and did stunts for Once Upon a Time in the West. But he would talk about, like, doing a horse roll where, like, the rider has the reins, and they also have two ropes. He's like, you know, we were taught how to safely, like, have a horse fall over, roll on top of you, like, do a full, like, fall down, have the horse roll over the rider, and both the horse and the rider be safe. And he's like, it's, the, like the, like, everyone was safe, but, like, the risks you were taking were insane. Um, and then yes, Kit, the stunt. tell us about uh, Franco Nero with two horses.
1: Well, to, to set it up, so they, they've left town uh, with Lisa, brought her to safety, and then they returned to town. And meanwhile, Caldwell, has uh, he's gotten all his forces together and he's yep. going to, he's ridden into town with the full, with the full force, uh, him included. Um, they're riding into the town and who do they meet? Doom to doom. It's uh well, this leads us to song number six. It's it's Kyoma. And song number six is Yeah, it's me, bitch, got my gun, what's up? What's the what's the meaning of anything really? Why are we all here?
2: Exactly what are the lyrics of the
0: this song. <laughs> it's not it's it's close, at least that's, some of them. That's that's the hip hop remix. Um Yeah. Um Um so yeah, then
1: we get this epic uh gun battle. Um, and at one point uh, Kiyoma, uh he's trying to ride away I suppose uh, but he doesn't want to get shot so what he does is he he basically jumps between two horses and rides them out as
0: protection and and the awesome thing about it is that like for a good chunk of like there is a stuntman that takes over at a certain when the when they have to do the horseball, there's a stuntman but for a lot of it it's actually Frank O'Nero and the look on his face is just like why the hell am I an actor? Why am I doing this? <laughs> 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 it's so, so great. Cause he's just like, white knuckle, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, and then yeah, it results in like a, two horse falls, a guy falls off the horse, like crazy stunts. And then is this the point when he gets like, his he gets dragged like, uh, no, he's up in the, um, the, the tower. No,
1: yeah, so George is apparently very adept at the bow and arrow and he's knocking off dudes with the bow I'll mm-hmm. uh, find out at the end of this double horse scene that uh, Maybe we didn't knew it before but Kioma is just excellent at throwing knives Yeah, um, once he loses the second horse. He, he just throws a few knives at uh, at the guys who are around and takes them out mm-hmm. He
2: pulls um, these knives out of thin air,
0: Yeah, I don't know where he's keeping them He's a rag, like he's a proto machete machete um really? and then like I gotta point out George's
1: um, reaction to being shot because that was something else. I don't know if you guys remember it. Because all of a sudden, so he's you know he's taking care of business. Him and um, him and Mr. Shannon, old man Mr. Shannon. He's like, it's good to be back, Mr. Shannon. Yeah. Um, you know, killing killing dudes. Um, and then he gets shot, and then he gets shot again,
0: and just this weird like.
3: Ah!
0: Kind of oh yeah. Story. Yeah, he keep, and he, doesn't he keep doing it? It was almost like a Michael Jackson, like, ah! Yeah, he does it like three
1: or four or five times, takes it a few more guys, and then when he falls down, there's a banjo twang, and then oh, a, yeah. visible, a visible frown from Mr. Shannon, who's upset that George has, has been uh, murdered. Uh, it's quite something. It is indeed.
2: But George puts up a lot of fighting, like all the times he gets shot, you know, like he's like seven bullets in and he's still fighting.
1: Yeah. he dies a hero's death for sure mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, and then I guess Kioma kind of he goes up into a tower to uh, to shoot the men from there and he's able to take quite a few down but then like the second in command bad guy is kind of able to uh, to get close and he shoots off somehow he's able to shoot off Kioma's gun belt mm-hmm. causing both his uh, his rifle and his handgun to drop below mm-hmm. now uh, now Kiyoma's unarmed and this guy's got him dead to rights. Uh, but Kiyoma grabs, like, a miniature pitchfork
0: or something and just, like, throws it down at the guy and stabs him through the heart. Yeah, yeah, And then that's where we got the great, like, slow motion of him getting hit, fast motion of the guy flying out, like, doing a, a full fall from the tower. By the way, this is another crazy stunt because you see the landing in the shot. Like, you never see a landing in a shot when a guy falls out of a the building. They always fall out of the building. And this one, you actually see him just hit the ground and stop. So I don't know if that was, like, a very firm crash pad that the guy landed into, or they had rigged it up somehow so that it would look like he stopped when he hit the ground. But it was, a, it was another fantastic stunt from this sequence. And then at this point, um, the Codwell's man grabs his father and- we get, we get song number seven, which is quite an epic song. What's that one?
1: Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm again, not sure of the exact title. This could be it, this might not be it. Um, in a little too deep here, Kiyoma, eh? Now your dad's gonna be dead. Way to go. You're f-ed, dude. Life sucks.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, this song goes on for a long time uh, because it, it kind of continues as uh, Kiyoma, he, his dad is, uh, got a gun to his head. So Kilma's like, damn it, I have to surrender. I can't sacrifice my dad. And yeah. uh, his dad's like, no, no, Kioma, don't do it. Uh, and then so, um, and then Caldwell shoots his dad anyway after he
0: surrenders, yeah, and at this point they dra- this is when they drag Kioma through the uh through the town, yeah, and this is when song number seven, the lyrics change
1: a little mm-hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you're you're you messed up Dad, your dad's gonna die, life sucks, oh, time for freedom, oh shit, I'm being dragged, you
0: know what? who cares? Kill my ass, yeah, and so they like they. <laughs> They, they, yeah, so they drag him through the town, they drag him through the dirt, they drag him through the water, and then they tie him up on a, on, a, on like a, a water mill cool. wheel, which makes no sense for the why that would be in the middle of town. Um, but you kind of, you kind of get like a Christ-like thing going on because he's tied up, but not, not as blatant as some other films, not like, you know. Not as blatant Cyborg. as Cyborg? Yeah. Not, not as blatant as Cyborg, no. No, not The Passion of the Clod. Um but that's but, uh, yeah that's when the uh, the garbage sons show back up. And you're like, "Yay, they made the right choice cuz they see that like their father was killed, so they shoot Codwell dead." They're like, "Yeah, you shouldn't have done that." And then they and then and then they start talking about law and order and I'm like, "Oh right, they're going to he's like, "You know, I should not have had to do this. He should have been tried, you know, legally." Um just like our brother will be tried legally. And you're like, "What? Like our brother who's the cause of all this?" Yeah. If he didn't return, but I, I kind of had this moment of like, is he telling the truth? Because it's like, well, I mean, who, like, his father Father would still be alive. Woody would still be alive. Uh, Lisa would go to the plague mine, so that's not good. Or No, she would have been dead because it would have killed her there. But she dies anyways when she gives childbirth. Uh, I mean, George was an aimless drunk, though this uh, this that's puts true. some purpose
1: back into his life. And his yeah. dad was kind of a washed-up gunfighter, so this allowed him to kind of die in a blaze of glory, too.
0: Yeah, and so basically, um, uh, do- fake Donald Sutherland is going to become the town sheriff to install law and order. And the brothers, let's say, like we're going to, you know, reestablish ties. We're going to clean up this town. We're going to make it a, a major metropolis. We're going to actually, like, bring put the town back on the map and, like, restore law and order and, and uh, prosperity to all. I okay. wish and, – and one of them says, I wish we could kill my brother now, but you know what? We're law and
1: order people now. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to wait for uh, him to be tried properly. We're just going to leave him here
0: tonight tied to this yep. wheel, and let's go party. Yeah. And which – I'm like – I kind of get why the townspeople instantly side with them because that's a pretty good – it, it, it's it's why people voted for Rob Ford and Doug Ford, because it's like, oh, one guy's going to just fix wave a wand and fix everything. Well, I love that these uh, these three fail sons show up at the end
1: of a massive gunfight, shoot one guy, and then they're like, oh, we run this town now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we got uh, song number uh, eight, which is uh, one of my personal favorites. This is one uh, sung by the uh, the man. Yeah. And it goes, um, death, I want you here, my black lady. I don't want to live in a world without my dad.
0: That's pretty intense.
1: <laughs> his, yeah. his remorse over his dad is like, there's nothing worth living for. My dad's not
0: on this earth. It's dead time for me. It's the just only take me now.
1: And
2: there's so, a shit ton of
0: rain happening now as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. That might not have been planned. That might just have been like, it's raining. Roll the cameras. So free production value. Free production value. So how does Kioma get cut down? It's, it's
2: also so like he's been on that wheel for like a week. And he's yeah. just been enduring
1: all that rain. How does uh, he get cut down? Well, that leads us to song number nine, Graham. Yes. Uh, and song number nine goes, Lisa, it's up to you. Your turn. Save Kioma. Right. She comes back and saves him. And then um, and then the, like, the the next part of the song is, what's going on, Kiyoma? Maybe your dad's not the
0: only thing to live for, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, as a child they could raise together and 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 so this leads to like probably like so she yeah so she comes back from wherever she was she's like almost in labor
1: yeah uh, so it's a struggle for her to get there she gets on a horse somehow and she rides out she's like Kioma.
0: i must save him like she has some spiritual connection to him now but the so this leads to like in a, in a film full of really good sequences they, because you like you see this big action sequence that like goes 20 minutes long. The entire town's involved. They top it with the final sequence, the action sequence in the movie. Like the Ooh, yeah. three brothers realize that Kioma has escaped, and so they track him down. And as Lisa is going into, you know, the, the three brothers are sneaking in to this abandoned house that that uh, Kioma and Lisa have, have like, held up in, and. Ki- and like the, the, the soundtrack is totally taken over by this, by the, the pains of Lisa giving birth yeah, and the it's, so entirety, it's, it's so good though. It's so good. And you, you see Kioma have to take out his three brothers almost silently while you just have the sounds of Lisa giving birth over it. And I, I loved it. I thought it was it's, such it's a, a g- go ahead. Oh
1: no, sorry. Um, I was going to let you finish.
0: No no I just it's just such a good sequence.
1: Um, but yeah what we're you gonna say? It's a, well, it's got good tension in it like there's that scene where like he realizes that his brother is just above him and then his brother realizes that he's just below him and he can kind of see his hair. yeah and, like, the like the floor. who's gonna shoot who first who who's got the drop on who It's hard to tell
3: mm-hmm.
1: And I can't quite remember how he takes out the brothers one by one, but he does he gets to all of them. yeah. Um, and then on the like the final death, uh, I guess there's one more childbirth scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, a baby is delivered. the The old woman, the kind of the has reappeared at this point too. She's just kind of hanging around, sort of being yeah. a um. Uh, what am I, a midwife, sort yeah. of. Yeah. No, she doesn't really exist. Hmm. Um. The baby is born, and then it's quite clear that the mother yeah. dies in childbirth. Just mm-hmm. like, like her head falls back. Her eyes are open
0: yeah. still. Dead. What? Like, sadly, many women did in childbirth back then. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a real roll of the dice. Um, so, uh, what was I going to say? And so then the witch is left with the child at the end, and this is where that great line comes from that you were talking yeah, about? That,
1: yeah, like, uh, well, what are you going to do now? The child's going to die without you. And then he doesn't say anything, gets on his horse. Uh, mm-hmm. I've already said this, but I'll repeat it again. Um, and then he's like, uh, he can't die, uh, you know why? Because he's free and those who are free can never die. And then he rides off into the sunset and we get our final song, song number 10, mm-hmm. um, which is, um, and so Kiyoma goes from town to town looking for something. There's nothing left for Kioma though and uh, his heart will never be uh, at peace, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> the, uh, the ending song. Yeah. Well. It's a very I- moody movie. It's extraordinarily moody
0: yeah yeah and that's Kioma, yay we did it um uh, hey. so guys phil what are your final thoughts on kiyoma
2: i enjoyed kiyoma it, it's a nice uh, mix of like um moody dark western but it's also really campy in parts i think especially at that part near the end like that slow-mo where he just like lunges at the i love episode. that
1: Oh, yeah. After he uh, Caldwell shoots his dad, he just like goes yes. into tiger mode. Right, oh, he yeah. that running leap. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's in the air for like at least thirty seconds. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, the it like it's the most emotion.
1: It's the most emotion you get from Kiyoma all movie. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, and then that wig is held firmly in place. Mm-hmm. What he's doing, um, and also it's. Quite apt that we've that we've picked a Western that is a plague movie, and also I guess sort of an Easter movie because uh very much so, yeah. Of, uh, he resurrects, yeah. He resurrects,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's a double whammy. And totally.
1: and also, you know, uh, Jesus also used to go from town to town with his gun and his horse.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, fighting off his three and brothers. His beard and his hair, yeah. Mm, yeah, cool. Anything and else? Of
2: course, the soundtrack, and you talked about um, the action sequences, but yeah, like with the final sequence, um, it's such a perfect juxtaposition of like, like the sound like totally drops out and, like where all you hear is the childbirth, and just uh, it syncs up so well with the slow mo shootout Yeah, quite artistic film. at the and end. The
0: Again, that's juxtaposition end. of life and death. Kent, what are your final thoughts on uh, Kiyoma? It
1: was a very bleak scene. I remember there was actually one uh, one part where she asks uh, Kyoma um, earlier, Lisa does. She's like, why are you helping me? And uh, he gives like, not because, you know, like, oh, because I like you or blah, blah, blah. He's like, we all have the right to be born, is his response. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, OK. Uh, so he's got his principles. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty badass film. Like I, I kind of liked it. I dug it. It's a, it's a weird little oddity at times. As I said, it's got yes. an extreme camp kind of vibe to it with the uh, with the singing uh, and the Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a uh, you know it's got all these wonderful. It's just soaked in all these wonderful like tropes, like you know the stranger rides back into town, um, blah 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 kind of stuff, just all
0: throughout it. Uh, yeah, I dug it overall. Mm-hmm. yes yeah i i love this movie i think it's it's super fun it's super Wait, like well, it's yes well what did you all think of franco nero's performance
1: i guess he didn't have to do much
2: no not really apart from it's all physical really
1: mm-hmm. yeah and then he's got he pretty much hides the accent decently behind his beard
3: <laughs> yeah uh
0: i i've always been a big fan of franco nero and like, it's also impressive when you realize that for, like, a lot of this period, he didn't speak English whatsoever. Um, and I think the first role that he actually, like, had a good grasp of the English language was 1980s Enter the Ninja, and they just redubbed him anyways. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I – I, like, this film is fun. It's great. Franco Nero was great. Uh, Olga uh, Carlotos was great. Um, all the sons – Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt.
1: Uh, I've also written something else down here. I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, it's just a point about Kiyoma and his characterization is that Kiyoma will, uh, if you're not careful, suddenly knock a man out with a left, right upper uppercut uppercut combo. Oh yeah. Which he does a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Just like out of the blue, like it looks like he's just looking down at his feet and then left, right. <laughs> so he's got that kind of, um, capability too.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, I mean, all around great, but like, the fact that Angel G. Castellari just, like, squeezed this one in, like, just sort of like, let's just, let's do one more Western while we can, was great, because I think 77 uh, was probably the last year that any Italian Westerns were produced, and the last one wasn't even really an Italian Western, it was kind of like a Eurocrime film mixed with a bit of a giallo set in the West, it wasn't so much a Western. Ooh. So uh which I have have that that title somewhere. I'll be uh we're running out of time. But yeah, if you're interested in spaghetti westerns, I highly recommend the book Ten Thousand Ways to Die, written by Alex Cox, which is a chronological history of the Spaghetti Western. Um
2: I have no idea he wrote any books.
0: Oh yeah, he's got he's got a couple. Like this one I actually don't think it was released in North America. I, I I forget where I found this one, but I um actually I think I found it at uh you remember the show the the bookstore at Queen and John? Oh yeah. Pages. Pages. Yeah. I, I got this there as well as his, his, uh, his, uh, filmmakers bi- biography that he wrote. Cause he directed 10, Ooh, when he snap. directed 10 films, he wrote a, a biography. About it. They're both very good books, but his, um, he only has one, like one sentence on Kioma in the entire, in the entire book. And whereas every other year gets its own chapter, the 70s mm-hmm. is just one chapter alone. So Kioma is, let me, let me read, um, a little bit about Kiyoma. just like to point out also that the wardrobe
1: in Kiyoma is pretty fantastic. Oh yeah. <laughs> I want just those. Every points. hat, every like you know, coat, just perfect. You know, looks like worn down and dusty
0: and terrible. Yeah. So the the only mention of Kioma in this entire book. Oh, we have less than a minute remaining. Oh crap. Uh I want to stop and ah uh, stop and start again. It's a, okay. it says an hour and thir- it says a minute thirty on my side. Okay. Um, well, oh, what's okay. the quote the quote is 1976 Kiyoma, a big old fashioned action spaghetti western starring franco nero in the castellari style that's it that's it uh, <laughs> and this book this book literally has a mention of every single spaghetti western that was ever made um, did he
2: even watch Kiyoma?
0: doesn't sound did. like it no he did that he, does not he, sound uh, like it. he did but he just i don't think he he had anything to say about it yeah all right, so should we sign off while we're we're still recording? We have less than a minute left. I guess. Sure. All right, we'll be back next week with another episode of Death by Video. So for Death by Video. I've been Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying please be sure to rewind. Stay safe, and we will return with more uh, shenanigans soon. Special guests and Quarantine stuff. by Video. Yeah. Quarantine by Video.
3: I want to be a cowboy. I'm going to be a cowboy. I'm going to be a cowboy. I want to be a cowboy. Look, cowboy!